0: The difference between sort of personal productivity and team productivity or team action is that it's inherently a social action. Teamwork is inherently social, which means because of the type of beings that we are, it's also inherently emotional. I don't just do something because of the facts. I do something because I want to support Brian. That's the social action. But because... I feel empathy for Brian, or I feel some camaraderie, like even underneath that social thing, there's an emotional ride along, right? And so for the leaders, like, just give me the facts, I would say, I will give you the facts and I will include part of the facts that this is how people feel, that this is the social, like, ramifications of some of these choices and some of these scenarios, because those are facts just as much as other things.
1: Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I am Brian Gorman, a Quantivose coach and your host. And today, our guest is Charlie Gilkey. Charlie is the author of Team Habits, How Small Habits Lead to
0: Extraordinary Results. Welcome, Charlie. Brian, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have our conversation today.
1: I'm going to start off with two quotes and the opening of a story, but I let me start with the two quotes. They're right from the front end of the book. The first is Lao Tzu, who said, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading. I think that's a great introduction to this conversation. And the other is a Charlie Gilkey quote from the book. No matter your role in the company, you have the power to change your team's habits. How can you say that so certainly, Charlie?
0: Well, it's a bit of a sleight of hand, um, but I need to unpack that a little bit. So, for the rest of the day's conversation, when I say team, I mean something pretty specific. I mean the four to eight people that you spend 80% of your time working with. I'm not talking about your organization, I'm not talking about your department. I'm talking about those four to eight people. And for the sake of our conversation today, Brian, I'm going to assume that me and Brian are on the team or we're on a team. We know each other. We know each other's kids and, you know, what our interests are, what our favorite songs are like. It's Brian and it's Charlie. Now, in that context, if Brian and I show up for a team meeting and it's me and Brian and that team meeting sucks, Brian and I can say, you know what? That was not cool, <laughs> right? Let's not do that again. Like what, where we are heading is not where we want to go. So let's change that together. And that actually expands to the to your core team. And I think what people forget about is at this team level, your team leader is also part of the team, right? We want to make this artificial distinction between, well, there's us and then there's her, and she's a manager or the team leader, and then there's the rest of us. But at the team level, she's a part of the team too. If she's in a meeting and it sucks, she probably wants it to change too, right? And so- When we take that perspective, then we all have a role to play. We all have some co-agency in this. We are not merely victims of the things that we do to each other, right? If I propose a bad meeting and then run a bad meeting, Brian can come to me like, Charlie, I don't know where you're at today, but that one wasn't it, right? And we can fix and solve it together. And I think one of the fundamental things I want people to take from Team Habits Is this idea of co-agency with how we're treating with each other and realize that that's actually what leads to high performance and realize that treating each other as the individuals that we are doing our best, trying really hard, probably overwhelmed is the single best way to avoid the very thing that we don't like that organizations do to us, which is treat us like indispensable cogs that just, you know, get moved around in those types of ways. So that's why I have the confidence to say that.
1: Thank you. You said a couple of things, illustrated a couple of things around a theme I want to come back to. But before I do, you begin the book by referring several times to the broken printer. And the broken printer shows up elsewhere in the book as well. Why is that such a
0: good analogy
1: for team habits?
0: Every organization that I've worked at or consulted with has at least one broken printer that everybody knows about. And sometimes that printer has been there so long, it's got like an employee number and a name. It's like, oh, Tom in the corner. Like, it doesn't work, but like, it's just there, right? And on the one hand, the printer itself, it's not that big of a deal. But the downstream effects of that broken printer are huge, right? Because the printer's broken, we don't print out agendas and handouts during meetings, And so we're trying to talk over each other's phones and tablets and computers, and that's not working for us. Or it's time to present something to the big boss, and we hit the printer, or we hit print and Tom starts spooling it out, and then we realize that, oh, crap, it's going to have that streak down the middle, and I got to redo it and figure out how to do it all over again, and we're scrambling. I can go on and on and on. The interesting thing to me about the broken printer is that it's at most a $500 decision that someone can take 30 minutes to figure out how to fix. It's not an insurmountable problem. And yet it causes these setbacks and frustrations and sort of, you know, fork my life moments on a weekly basis. And it's been shown in, you know, um, morale studies and in all sorts of workplace um, studies that minor setbacks like a broken printer and what it does to you have an outsized effect of your morale <laughs> and rapport with your team. It makes you hate work just because the printer doesn't work. Now, as much as I talk about a for real broken printer, because many of us understand that, it could also be the other things that we do, like the CC thread from hell, that no one likes, that no one wants to be a part of, and yet when it's time for us to send the email out, we CC everybody, <laughs> because that's just what we do. Um, and so I call them broken printers because they're just those minor things that we have gotten blind to, and we've accepted it that it's just the norm of work, but it doesn't have to be that way and I want people to pay more attention to that.
1: When we first started talking, you talked about team as, for example, you and me, and you said, and we know each other's kids and our the pets and so forth and so on. That's a theme that I really harp on, I think, um, very often on the podcasts and with my clients, the importance of that person-to-person connection, not just that role-to-role connection. And so that really moves us into the first bucket, if you will, of team habits in the book. And let me just run down what those buckets are. First, there's belonging, decision-making, goal-setting and prioritization, planning, communication, collaboration, meetings, and core team habits. And then you end the book with team habits are political, so play the game and create your team habit roadmap. You begin the book with belonging and you also say, always start with belonging. A piece of that belonging is knowing the people on our team, knowing their lives beyond the work that they produce virtually or or physically in, in, in the workspace with us. Why do you say always
0: begin with belonging? Um, I'm going to start that, but I'm going to give you part of the secret code that's not in the book and it's not there intentionally. Um, When I started writing Team Habits, I very quickly realized that it was a book about power. Fundamentally, it was a book about power. Who has it? How do you get it? How do you transmute it? How do you use it? Right. And I'm like, oh crap, I didn't like, I know where the book would land if it's a book about power. Um, and it would create a meta conversation that would not be useful for our actual readers and what we're trying to do. But in this context, I can unpack it a little bit because it to show the importance of belonging. So there are three dimensions of power at play at work, in any organization really, but at work, right? And we only typically talk about two in the business landscape. So we talk about personal power. That's what I can do by myself with my own knowledge, expertise, know-how, you know, and things I could do on that side. Personal power, power two. On the other end of the spectrum, we have institutional power. That's the power over things. That's the power over people. That's the power over budgets. That's the power over different types of things, right? And it's what I can do because of my position in the organization. So much of the tension at work is because it's either, it's all on the person. Even books like It's the Manager actually (laughs) puts the bonus of team change on the manager. And I think that's fundamentally flawed right? Um, Or it's about changing leadership structures um, that creates a leader, not leader scenario that gets us into a place where people don't feel agency. And Brian, it's missing the huge dimension of power that's available to all of us, which is interpersonal power. That's the power that Brian and I have together that we don't have separately and that we, we don't need institutional power and It's more than just what I can do by myself or Brian can do by himself. So that's power with. To really lean into power with, you have to know and trust and feel a belonging with other people, right? Um, You have to feel that sense of partnership. You have to feel that sense of appreciation, respect, so on and so forth. And here's the funny thing. I'm going to sound like a coach, but I am an executive coach and an author, right? When you choose a paradigm, you reinforce the paradigm. So when you choose the paradigm of institutional power as a problem-solving vector, you reinforce that paradigm of institutional power as a problem-solving vector. So only the manager can fix the printer. It's the manager's job. The rest of us, we're just going to go on because we're drones in the army. We can't do anything, right? Um, but when we choose interpersonal, then we can say, wait a second, it's not just Brian's decision. It's not just Charlie's decision. It's ours to come together and figure out together. So belonging, the practices of belonging, I really do call them practices and team habits. And they are small things like remembering that when we bump into each other, like those natural things that happen throughout the workday, calling it out as a bump and saying, hey, Brian, you bumped into me on that one. It's cool, but let's talk about it. And even that simple team habit avoids it turning into a personality conflict, avoids it turning into Brian against Charlie. No, just Charlie that day was walking around a corner, didn't see Brian, bumped into him and, and like was had a million things going on and kept going. That's all it was, right? Um, so when we start with belonging, we get that. And the other thing I'll say real quick is you can have a performing team without good belonging, without high belonging. You cannot have a high performing team that does not have high belonging because that team will not endure. People will leave. The inevitable friction and burnout and pressure and intensity will have people go and look for other opportunities. You know, that team will actually break itself apart. However, if there's high belonging where people can solve problems together, can talk about some of the things going on, and really feel that sense of camaraderie, they're going to stick together and figure out how to make it work. Whereas when you don't have belonging, as soon as that next opportunity comes to bail, they will.
1: There are a number of things in there, Charlie, to to dig into. That belonging gives me a sense of commitment beyond myself. It gives me a reason to do my best. It gives, like you said, it gives me a reason to stick around. And as I'm listening to you, again, that can happen inside that institutional power organization. We can still develop that interpersonal power in our team which goes back to your earlier statement, that anybody has the power of changing team habits. You mentioned bumping when you started answering my last question. And bumping may be that walk around the corner, physical bumping into each other, but that's not the only bumping you mean. So tell us a little bit more about bumping.
0: Um, It could be that teammate that never threads in Slack. Right. Uh, I mean, like everybody else threads and there's a thing. And then this person has a random thing and it's just how they do it. They don't mean to do it, but it's what they do. It could, in a similar way, if you're not using Slack or Teams, it could be that person that res- rather than responding to the email thread, starts a whole other email chain referencing the other thread that makes everyone's life hard. It can be, you know, um, people who for always forget to change their file and permission settings, So they'll send something send it and drop it and run away. And then you can't access it until they come back. That's a case of another bump. It could be that excited team member who really does have a good heart that talks over everybody because she is so excited um, to, you know, to get the ideas out and be involved in the conversations and doesn't actually realize that she's crowded out other people, right? All of those different types of things are just the innocuous ways in which we're human. And we're going fast and we have our own little flaws pop up. Um, and so I got it because I actually, you know, if you've ever worked in food service or if you ever worked in, you know, the military or sports or any of those types of things, you realize that part of the job is that people are going to be bumping into you. You're going to catch an elbow. They're going to set a plate on like on something. You're just always going to be in physical contact with each other. And if you take every instance of that personally you're going to think your team is out to get you and you're not going to understand that it's like not at all that. Now there are occasions in which people do it maliciously or creepily and you can address that, but that's a very small minority of that. When we go into the modern work world, which is really knowledge working and service working for a lot of people, we forget that we still bump into people to your point. It's just not elbowing each other anymore. (laughs) It's not stepping on toes. It's just you know, that person always takes that seat um, and creates a pattern around that or whatever that might be. Like, there's malicious bumping, like when people are eating your food right in your refrigerator, that gets annoying, right? But there's an innocuous one, like you brought lemon yogurt, I brought lemon yogurt, they're the same one, I accidentally ate your lemon yogurt that you put there. Come on, like, that's just an innocent mistake that we don't have to make personal unless I do it every day, in which case is probably something else. <laughs>
1: i'm going to just read very quickly a number of the small things that you mentioned in the book that contribute to belonging and there are a few of these i want us to talk about but let me read through what i've got down here first know that the coffee break isn't about coffee encourage people to customize their environment recognize that chit chat is the main show not a distraction celebrate each other at work be intentional about inclusion and exclusion make room for deliberate thinkers, set inclusive meeting titles, use descriptive meeting agendas, make room for work preferences. And the last one I had written down actually was about acknowledging bumps to make them less personal. Let's know that the coffee break isn't about coffee. That's again, an opportunity to get to know one another, to uh, talk about the the ball game or, or last night's TV show, whatever. Recognize that chit-chat is the main show, not a distraction. We get into the meeting, it's let's get down to business. We have too many meetings already. Uh, why is chit-chat the main show?
0: Chit-chat reaffirms belonging for a lot of people, and it's also how we surface our weak ties. So weak ties are just tangential things like Brian tends to like this version of classical music, I like that same version of classical music, right? It adds another bond into our relationship that makes it stronger for when it's time for us to do hard stuff together, right? And so many, to your point, Brian, so many people show up and it's like, let's just get down the business without like, there's like the business. And then there's what I hate to say, there's the business and then there's this belonging, bonding stuff, right? So let's do the little that we have to do the belonging, bonding stuff, and then let's get to work. Actually, it's all work. It has different purposes, Right. And there are plenty of people out there who would say if they could, you know, we do 30 minutes of updates that no one really needs and don't get to talk to each other, which we do really need. Why are the updates more important than us talking? Right. Why have we so valued that piece? Because that could have been an email, but we can't have this real time conversation via email we can't get the tone we can't laugh about things we can't check in on each other and see if we're okay via an email update so i'm pushing back and saying like why do we value the senseless 30 minute update and disvalue the relational component of work instead of saying maybe what would happen if and i talk about this later in the chapter of meetings what would happen if we let our teams determine how they wanted to show up with each other and what they needed and what propelled to work forward. And if they spent 30 minutes talking and laughing and having a good time and then got out of that meeting and did even more work and got more work done because they felt that sense of belonging and safety and rapport and knew what was going on, why would we say, no, don't do that, right? You're going to have this meeting that you don't want or we're just going to cut that and then you're not going to get as much done. If we're really looking at outcome focused work and really taking that seriously i think a lot of people need to let go of how those outcomes happen and let the team determine some of those types of things so if you have a team that does a lot of chit chat because that's how they build belonging because that's how they build teamwork and collaboration because that's how they de-stress from the work maybe you let them do that and determine how they're going to solve for the other you know sort of seven um, types of team habits versus being like, you can't do that. And this is how you must show up at work. Set inclusive meeting titles, weekly team meeting. Isn't that inclusive? It could be right. Um, I'm talking more of things like, you know, quarter four marketing strategy as a meeting title, right? Who really can show up and contribute to that meeting really powerfully? Can the full team do it? Or is it really just two or three people talking? or if you're wanting that to really be about planning and problem solving maybe it's not a strategy session because again that particular word we have connoted to mean that some people do that and other people don't right maybe it's the marketing troubleshooting session where people can come in and talk about that thing and feel like they have some senses to that so a weekly team meeting can be inclusive in that very way if that's what people understand right um but I think there are some other types of meetings to where we can really rethink what are we trying to say by that meeting title? And is the very way we're setting it up leading to the very disengagement that we see during the meeting and wonder, like, why they're not contributing? Well, they're not contributing because you called this a type of thing that they're either not good at or haven't been invited into that conversation really. So they're just showing up because they have to. Make room for
1: deliberate thinkers. I'm one of those. Don't call me into a meeting that even if it has, now especially if it doesn't have a descriptive or inclusive meeting title, don't call me in and expect me to be able to just run my mouth about our marketing challenges. (laughs) Tell me what the topic is. Send me an agenda ahead of time. Let me think about it so that I have something meaningful to contribute. And if that doesn't happen, make it okay to say, let's all go back and think about this some more and share your thoughts on Slack or email or when we come back together in 48 hours. I know some incredibly brilliant people who have been literally driven out of organizations because they don't hang out at the coffee pot. They don't respond well to those immediate call meetings and so forth. And you're losing some really good talent, folks
0: that now nah, you too well you spoke to why i had that chapter in error with that section in there i think the challenge is that we despite the evidence that shows that fast talking charismatic bright-eyed leaders are not actually the best performing leaders despite the contrary despite the evidence it shows that we still select for that and so what ends up happening is we think high value contributors think fast talk fast can solve any problem on the fly, so on and so forth. And we build meetings around that, even though, again, there's plenty of evidence that shows that that is actually not the ideal form of leadership or the only way of showing up. And so to your point, you mentioned all the things there. And even in the meeting, if you need to be an ally for a teammate, that's a deliberate thinker and have the ability to do so. So, you know what? Stop real quick. We've been going really, really fast. Let's take a beat. Let's take maybe 30 seconds to collect our thoughts here. Brian, I'm curious, like in that time, is there something that might come up for you that you would like to speak to? Even just that pause can invite them back in and be like, you know, mm, I'm not sure about this, but here's what I'm doing. Or just making it okay that we can take a beat, collect our thoughts. And the other way that we can do that is as a team habit, not demand perfect answers all the time. Right. Just be like, so I will tell my team, even though I can be the person with the gifted gap, I'll be like, okay, team, I've got 11% of an idea here or an 11% of a plan. Right. Um, It's missing a lot of pieces, but I wanted to put that out there because I also know I have some very great deliberative thinkers on my team that will help me feel go from 11% to 90%. Right. Um, but I also make room for those same deliberate thinkers to be like, "Mm, I think this now, but I might want to come back and revisit that after I thinking about it a little more, right? This is how we make room for belonging. Because again, those deliberate thinkers feel appreciated and seen and respected for their unique talents, because we know at a team level, we need the sort of quick starts and fast runners, but we also need those deliberate thinkers to come back behind and be like, you know what? Here's 17 things that we didn't talk about or think about at the meeting that I think we need to put in into the plan. And I'm, I'm now ready to talk about some of those without feeling like a naysayer. Right. I want to move on to
1: decision-making. I don't know how many leaders I've coached over the years. And the vast majority of them say, I just want to decide on the facts. Just give me the data and I'll figure it out. So Charlie says at work decisions are inherently social they're also inherently emotional that doesn't bode well if i just wanted to decide on the facts charlie
0: yeah i would rather tell the truth the, the complete truth than the, than the incomplete truth and have that be what goes but yeah any decision when you decide so the difference between sort of personal productivity and team productivity or team action is that it's inherently a social action teamwork is inherently social which means because of the type of beings that we are, it's also inherently emotional. I don't just do something because of the facts. I do something because I want to support Brian. That's the social action. But because I feel empathy for Brian or I feel some camaraderie, like even underneath that social thing, there's an emotional ride along, right? And so for the leaders, like, just give me the facts, I would say, I will give you the facts, and I will include part of the facts that this is how people feel, that this is the social like ramifications of some of these choices and some of these scenarios, because those are facts just as much as other things. And if they say, well, I meant the quantitative information, then I would also push back and say, so the only things that matter are things that we can count. Is that what you're telling me? Because think about your own relationships, right? Um, most really important business decisions are all, I will say, I will go as far as to say all include emotional and social dimensions as well.
1: What comes to mind in listening to you there is um, Amazon and I think it's Nike have just recently been put to test for upping their expectations of people back in the workplace. And, you know, the fact is, quote unquote, that that's how we build or sustain our culture. The fact is, that's how we orient new people. The social and emotional impact on people um, who have either been working a much more hybrid uh, work experience or have been working virtually for many years. Man, you got to consider that. You got to consider that. Um, it's just a part of the reality. Remove decision making bottlenecks. And you talk about different levels of decision-making, even down to the individual contributor. This comes to my mind in a couple of ways. One is the mega organization where everything has to flow up and back down. And the other is in the organization that's moving beyond startup and the founder still holds the keys to everything. We are at, at Quantibus are actually working with one Old industry, if you will, uh, client that within their industry it has been command and control, it has been top down, and they are literally working with us um, through group, group and individual coaching to shift the culture to a stalwart crystal team of teams where decisions are empowered at the even at the individual contributor level where they're they're the most knowledgeable. But I'm the most knowledgeable, not by passing the situation up to, you know, five levels of the chain to have my boss's 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 boss talk to your boss's 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 boss to make a decision to pass it back down, but where I can talk to Charlie and we can decide and act, that's removing a decision bottleneck. The other, and if you would talk to this a little bit, is the startup founder who just doesn't know how to
0: let go um there's a reason why stanley mccrystal and i are really sympathetic on on this particular piece we both served in the army right we both served in places to where you could not do command and control and have a effective fighting force and an effective team you had to empower people to make their own decisions right and so um
1: I want to ask you to repeat that, Charlie, because it is so antithetical to the image that people have of how the military functions.
0: Yeah. So there are major changes in the way the military has run itself over the last two, three decades. And the modern soldier, the modern sort of unit actually has teams of teams in the way that Stanley talked about it. Like I grew up during that area as well, simply because... It is impossible to have a fluid, agile, effective fighting force with command and control. Like the information relays are too long. The commanders that are further away from the battlefield don't get enough information. By the time you describe enough of the information, the situation has changed and it's now different. And so we've had to empower and really train for soldiers to be able to think on their feet. Um, squads to be able to move as an element, for companies to be able to be self-sustaining. And so people, a lot of times, Brian, people push back as like, well, that's great. But like, you don't understand, Charlie, like you don't understand large organizations. Is like, actually, I do, right? It turns out, right? I think you don't understand fundamental human nature. I'll say this real quick to add into that. If we actually paid attention to how much people's time costed, we would really, I think, upend the dominance of command and control because by the time I have a $50, minute, a $50 decision that then someone, then someone else has to weigh on and then someone else has to weigh on and then someone else has to weigh on and it goes all the way up the chain and then all the way back, that $50 decision has now become a $5,000 decision. But we didn't spend the $50. We didn't spend the 50 bucks. Right. But then we're going to have a conversation about how everybody's not doing their jobs because they're overwhelmed. Why do you think that is? Right. So um, you asked me to speak to the, the founder who's learning to let go. The trick with founders is that typically they got there because they were some kind of unicorn that was able to rapidly process a situation and be a really effective generalist. And because of sheer immersion in whatever they were doing, they developed a lot of expertise quickly. They forget that when they hire people they have not had that amount the people they're hiring have not have had that six years or 20 years in doing the thing and all of that sort of integrated knowledge and all of that integrated sort of decision making so it takes them longer to learn how to make those decisions and so one of the things that we that founders really have to take seriously is that if you don't learn to let some of those decisions go you are not going to be able to scale your company and you're not going to be able to get your life back because the more you make the decision, the better you get at making those decisions and the worse everybody else gets at trying to keep up. So the very thing you're doing is leading to the situation you don't want. So a lot of times when I'm working with entrepreneurs and we're talking about training and things like that, I'm like, okay, so the first thing we need to do is set aside An amount of money or amount of time that we feel comfortable to have someone be in a learning environment. And that's just investing in their ability to be a part of the team. We have to go in with that as a sunk cost for a lot of them. Otherwise, there's just no room for their new teammates to learn how to run the business. And there's also no room for the founder to learn how to build an organization that's starting to specialize more versus being a team of high-level generalists that struggle to get the specific things done. I want to very quickly, Charlie, touch on one more
1: piece of decision-making, and I want to call up the military analogy again. You write, intent-based decision-making puts the onus of going through the pros and cons of the decision on the shoulders of the person who's doing the work rather than their supervisor. My nephew is a retired Marine colonel, and uh, like you, spent time in the Middle East in conflict situations. And he introduced me to the concept of the commander's intent, which is you know very much along the lines of what you were talking about. We need to know what the intent is. We need to be crystal clear on what it is that constitutes success here. And then we need to be able to dance with the dynamics of the situation as it changes. That's an important piece of decision-making in today's business world as well, because, and our listeners have heard me say this before, I truly believe we are at the early stages of the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution. Now, COVID sort of kick-started a lot of things that have been nurturing and bubbling under the surface for a long time. But now we've got AI, we've got so many other things that are just going to continue to disrupt the work environment, the business environment, um, what it means to be a workplace. And so even the front lines has to understand the intent of the work that they're doing and then let them freaking do it. We are going to have to wrap up. Pretty quickly here, and and there's a lot that we didn't cover, but I hope we gave people a flavor of the fact that small habits can make a small changes in habits can make a big difference. If you would just briefly touch on, because again, it sounds so antithetical to what I was told growing up, team habits are political. Nobody will disagree with that. So play the game. My mother was very successful in
0: business, and she always told me she understood the politics, but she didn't play the game. So part of what I'm doing there is playing with our image of what we see as what counts as political and what doesn't, right? And so in some sectors of the American psyche, right, it's political means bad. Um, And so if you're playing a political game, you're playing a bad game. But really, when you think about the broad concept, it's just influence and getting groups of people to do things right that's at core what politics is getting your team to change its habits is getting a group of people to do a certain thing that's a political act that's a social and political act now my point about playing the game is that if you understand it you have to speak to you know hearts minds and hands at the same time you can't just come with the facts people are not going to change just because of the facts those facts have to Respect where they're coming from, respect their feelings, respect the dynamics of the group. Right. And so when I say play the political game, I don't mean the nefarious dog eat dog, you know, pork barrel game that we all hate that's a part of politics. I'm talking about play the game of understanding that you're moving a group of people in a certain direction. And to move those groups of people, there are certain ways that you need to do that well or you're going to fail. Right. Um, And so the reason most Top-down change initiatives fail to a degree of two thirds, seventy-five. This seventy-five percent. This goes, you know, um, this is well documented. Is because the people instituting the change don't realize they have a political game on ha- on their hands. Right? They think we can just make the facts. They'll see the business case, and people will change. Sorry, no, that is not at all the way this works. Right?
1: That's yeah. That's decades of my career, and I know well that's not how it works.
0: Yeah, and so changing your team's habits. And again, as much as I've talked high level throughout this conversation, I'm talking small habits, like leave five minutes at the end of a meeting so that you can capture next actions. That's a meeting team habit that if we actually practice it in a team would transform a lot of things. It's like the simplicity of it is subversive. Um, But if we just practice that for a quarter, things will unlock. But to get all five or eight of us to do that consistently it's going to require a champion. It's going to require someone really moving us along, telling us the story of the change, keeping us out of bad habits that we've got. That's a political action there, right? Um, and I also have the other sneaky thing here, Brian, I'll tell you, I haven't told many people. The reason I'm calling it that is because I actually think what's true of team habits is true of us building the democracy that we want to have. Right. If we can do this in our teams at work, we can do this in our teams and groups in the community. If we could do it in the community, we can do it in our, in our counties and states and so on and so forth. And so a broader theme of team habits is let's lean back into the power we have with each other to make things better and not fall back into just waiting on somebody else to make the change when that someone else is just as busy and overwhelmed and probably not as well-armed as we are, to make that change. Charlie Gilkey, Team
1: Habits, How Small Habits Lead to Extraordinary Results. Thank you for this conversation.
0: Thanks so much, Brian. A real treat to be here.